Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is a journalist, copywriter, and, as of this month, a published author, Anna Kinsella. Anna started her career as a fashion journalist over a decade ago when she moved to London from Dublin to study fashion journalism at Central St Martins. Her debut book, Look Here, charts her experiences in London, choosing to meander the streets to establish herself within a city that can so easily swallow one up. She opens our eyes to the serendipity of the city and the quirks of being a singular dweller amongst millions. Anna, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. It's really lovely to, to have you here and, and to have this lovely book, which describes so many places that are familiar to me and I'm sure will be familiar to, to our other readers. But as you explain, all of those places are singular. Everybody has a different memory about each place. And basically what we're all doing is creating our own maps. Yes, exactly. And I think this is something I've kind of thought about in different ways for the almost 11 years I've lived in London. But a lot of it kind of synthesised for me during the lockdown when suddenly those maps, I think, shrank for us all and we became much more involved in what was happening in our local neighbourhood. We were seeing the same streets and the same faces and the same sights all the time. And I think there was a lot of conversation about what there was to miss about city life during this time. And we talked a lot about culture and people were saying, you know, if you can't go to restaurants and bars and theatres, why are you in the city? And for me, I was actually thinking, like, there's something else entirely different that I miss about city life during lockdown, which is just this this wide variance of it, this ability that you have to walk for miles and see loads and loads of different things or to take the tube, you know, just go to a completely different neighbourhood, get a bit out of your routine and see different things in the city. Mm. And as you say, it means different things to, to all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder then what the relationship is between walking and writing. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, walking is definitely where I work out a lot of my ideas You know, you spend a lot of... Writing is so solitary to begin with, even if you are working on a paper or a magazine or with a team or anything. It's about spending time at the desk on your own. Walking is also also can be very solitary, but it feels more, I guess, productive in a different way. I think your mind... It's always been very important for my mind to find different connections to different ideas, and that's how I come up with ideas as a writer. And I can do a lot of that at my desk, but you can also just hit a wall. And I think for me, walking, getting out just the spontaneity of what you might encounter, which could be nothing or it could be, you know, an interesting pedestrian or, you know, something happening on your street or bumping into someone you didn't expect to see. That is, for me, a very a generative process for ideas and writing. Mm. Let's go back to the beginning of this journey, mm-hmm. if you like. So through Ireland and through New York. Yeah, so I, I always wanted to study fashion journalism from when I was kind of a teenager. I really loved fashion magazines. And I loved living in Dublin, but I was aware that it was probably quite difficult to have the kind of career in fashion journalism that I wanted to pursue, at least straight off the bat as well. I graduated in 2011. There was a big recession that was affecting media in particular. So I kind of knew from when I was in college that I would like to live in London particularly. I was born in London. My parents are Irish, but we're working here, which is a very familiar process, I think, for a lot of Irish people over the generations. So I did have a sense of what London was. I left when I was six, so my ideas, my memories of it are a little bit vague, I guess. But I I did know that it was a place that I would like to come back to. And then straight after university, I went to New York for three or four months on a kind of a a work visa called the J1, which is kind of a rite of passage for a lot of Irish students who will go over and work for a summer. And I was lucky enough to be able to intern at fashion magazines as well as working in a a shop like a lot of people, I think, of my, my cohort that year. And this gave me just an experience of a different kind of city life 
than I had experienced in Dublin. Dublin is a wonderful city and I absolutely adore it. It's a lot smaller than New York or London, as you can imagine. And it's there's a lot of familiarity. You will bump into people like every time you leave your house, basically. And when I got to New York, I realised that there's this thrill of being small in a big place and just being one part of this huge ecosystem of all these people from all over the world, all there for different reasons, all kind of just doing their own thing and you're among them. And I just felt like I was in this stream moving through Manhattan and Brooklyn and it was just a really wonderful feeling. And I was very, very sad to leave at the end of that. That said, I think life in New York, particularly if you're starting your career, you don't have a lot of money or connections, it's very, very tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you when you leave New York, you write, I can remember the part of myself that I left on a stoop in Brooklyn. And this idea of leaving parts of ourselves across the world as a sort of trail or mm. proof that we were there is, is beautiful. Would you say that we also take a part of a place with us too? And if so, what did you take from New York or indeed um, Dublin? That's such a wonderful question, because I definitely think we do. And I think, you know, when I write about New York, an interesting thing about writing this book is that I was reliving in my mind memories of when I was kind of 22, which was this very emotionally rich time. I think for most people, when they're 22, they feel very open to the world and to new experience and things in ways that we might lose over the years. So I had this sense, even when I was living in New York, that I was kind of making memories that I would have for the rest of my life. And it felt quite... I kind of I felt this narrative thread pushing through it in, in a way which maybe maybe it's because I wanted to be a writer at the time and I it was the beginning of my writing career but I definitely felt that what I was doing was kind of assembling this this patchwork of of images and places and memories that I would take with me and would remember forever and I definitely think that's true of, of the places we go and the places we live in particular you know I always tried to when I moved out of a flat in a various any city I was living in to take a picture of myself in front of it even if not even to have the picture but to remember taking the picture and to remember what it was mm. like that time. Mm, mm. So what what did you take from New York? What lives in your yes. heart? Sorry, I kind of missed your question there. I got a bit um sidetracked. What did I take from it? I think it is that the feeling of variance of city life, of the possibility of it all and of feeling like you can opt in, I think, to city life in a way that some people, I think, you know, there are always lots of people who don't like life in big cities. And I think a lot of that is they're given the choice to take part in this this huge flow of humanity. And they kind of think, you know, it's not for me. And I would rather live somewhere smaller. And that's completely fine. But for me, living in New York definitely taught me that I do like to opt into that in some way. Mm. I like the feeling of being small in a big place. What about the loneliness that's associated with that? Yeah, I think that's very true. And I was even saying this the other day, you know, I've lived in London for 11 years and it's really only now that I have a network of close friends who live close enough to me that I don't need to plan to see them weeks in advance, which I found very, especially in my 20s, this thing of you have this packed calendar and you have to ration your time to see people and it's so hard to kind of carve out time just to be social sometimes. And it's, that is so, you know, it's it's why I think people feel so lonely in these places sometimes. I think definitely it's it's kind of realising what loneliness you're willing to, you're willing to be comfortable with, which is different for different people. I, I don't mind my own company. I live with my husband and my cat and that some days that's enough for me. But other days I think you, you do want to see people and connect with people. But I also think that's what I, I was doing a lot in the walks that I took for writing the book. I think when you spend a lot of time alone, sometimes you need the reminder that other people do exist. And for me, sometimes just taking a walk and trying to observe the other people I was seeing was enough to to make me feel a bit more empathetic and a bit less introverted about city life. Mm. So tell us about the structure of the book. Yeah, I knew that I didn't want it to be a single essay or a series of essays. I wanted it to feel like a journey through the city in a way. 
So it's kind of divided into three different sections, one of which is interviews. I've done kind of, I think, six or seven interviews with different Londoners who I found to have different interesting perspectives on the city. Then there are chapters that are linked to a particular place and are usually drawn from a particular, you know, observational trip or, or a series of trips that I took to that place. That makes it sound like kind of like I had a checklist and I was doing research. It was a lot more fluid than that, but I did want to link it to these particular locations. And then the other chapters are a series of chapters titled Walking. And these are more kind of thematic explorations of things I was interested in. And I think they're a little bit more digressive and allowed me to kind of meander around a topic. So it's things like there's one chapter called Passeggiata, which is this Italian idea of taking a walk in the evening as a social event. And it was something I thought a lot about in lockdown because I live near Hampstead Heath. You would go there and you would just see everyone was th- walking was the only thing you could do. You know, who was walking in the park was your social life. And then there's another chapter where I kind of talk about this concept I call going time, which is all the time you spend in a city moving from one place to another, waiting for a bus, waiting for a friend in a restaurant. And I do kind of touch on the loneliness of that as well, as you say, but it was something I quite liked about city life. It was nice to have a way to write about that. Yeah, that time spent in transit between places, but not necessarily spent moving. Exactly, yeah. 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 In the uh, interviews that you do with people, one of the people that you interview is Nicola Deneen, who's a station supervisor at Canada Water Station. I found that so interesting, kind of observing, getting inside a station. Tell us some of the highlights from that. Yes, I loved that interview. I thought... I mean, the tube is such a huge part of any Londoner's life, I think, as long as you live near a tube station, which I suppose not everyone does. But for me, it was impossible to think about moving around the city, even if I was writing mostly about walking, without thinking about the tube as well. And also, I thought that, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, people who work in the tube and the tube station itself is fixed, whereas everyone else is simply passing through it. And Nicola talks so well about that, you know, this this feeling that she has of, of watching everyone move through and watching the tides of commuters change through the course of the day, seeing where they're going, seeing what they're wearing. I found it really, really interesting. And what was great about talking to Nicola is that she is an absolute people watcher as well. So it was wonderful to kind of almost bond over our love of just watching people pass by in the city. Mm. I just want to pick up on what you were saying about watching people or looking at what people were were wearing because, Mm. I mean, you talk about sartorial memories shaping your space and and all the rest of it. And you also mentioned dressing for invisibility and you talk about there being nothing more honest than putting on something that you love to wear. So I wonder how clothing shapes your experience of a place and how your relationship with clothing has changed as you grow older. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I think the way I, I relate kind of clothes to place is that through that, I guess the common thread between them is time, isn't it? Because it's the way that, you know, a particular item of clothing can remind you of a time in your life, it's it's the time that you were wearing that. And that's the same with the place. It's it's when you were spending a lot of time in that place and making memories around it. And I do think that, you know, now I've been here over 11 years and I can see how my relationship with both of, all three of those things, time, place and clothing, have changed over time. I am definitely someone who wears, who keeps clothes for years and I have a wardrobe full of clothes I've had since I was a teenager and things like that. But at the same time, you can recognise that not everything fits your life as your life changes. And sometimes you hold on to things purely because of the memories you associate with them and the memories of who you were as a person when you wore them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I love in your field notes, uh, there's a lot about what people are wearing. Yes. And these are very, very short little snapshots. I mean, so for instance, one of them is just Highgate High Street, Liam Gallagher waiting for a lift. (laughs) I didn't want to call out people by name too much, but then when I saw him, I just thought, you know, you see him a lot around Highgate sometimes. So. Yeah, it was. It, it seemed like a, a good way to weave it in. But I think in the field notes, what I really want, you know, I was often struck while working on this book that 
it's almost a crazy idea to think that one person can encapsulate all of the layers of multiplicity in a city in one book. All I can do is write about my own observations and my own experience. So in those field notes, I did want to at least nod to the, you know, the idea that there are many, many more people in the city than just me and to do it through observing, which I guess is what is at the heart of the book. Yeah, I, I love these little snapshots. They really conjure up. You can complete your there in the moment with you seeing like three uniformed removals men grappling with a 10 foot high potted palm, yeah. lifting it out of a van with care, using a twisted blanket around the base of the pot. We've all seen that. Yes. We? And I think, I mean, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were garnered during lockdown. And it was that time of I think it did something to our attention and what we found interesting because a lot of them were things that I would come back to my flat and my husband would be like, how was your walk? And I'd be like, well, I saw three men grappling with a pot of, you know, like, and it's it's not actually newsworthy. It's not actually all that interesting per se, but it's still, it's it may have been the thing that I took away from that particular walk. Yeah. Now you live in Highgate and that is in fact a very wealthy mm. area, parts of it, although you go down the hill to Archway where it really is not. Mm. But a lot of the book, well, some of the book I find is about money. You, you address it directly. You talk about the beautiful houses on Pond Square mm-hmm. and how short of a lottery when you could never live there. And I wonder about that and walking around the city and the concept of of both money and of envy? Mm, Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think that it is impossible, certainly for me, to get away from money when you live in a city and when you're thinking about it because it it decides where you live in the city. It decides how I spend my time, which I write about in the book, this relationship between... And as a, you know, a freelance journalist, some you have good years and you have bad years. You know, like you have years where you've you've made plenty of money and you've been really busy and years where it's just been a lot slower. So I've, I've kind of gotten used to this elastic nature of it. I do think on envy, uh, luckily, I don't think I'm an incredibly envious person because I probably couldn't live in Highgate if, if I was someone who coveted what my neighbour had in that sense. And I definitely... I can see that it's it's a very important part of city life because you see that people are often driven, you know, in this acquisitive way by what they want, you know, what, what they want to, to gain, what they want from their promotion or their salary and their property and all this. It hasn't necessarily been the approach that I've had to my life in the city. I think I would, I always describe myself as more of a process-oriented person than a goal-oriented person. So if I'm kind of having a nice time with what I'm working on, it matters a bit less than what I gain from it in that sense because for me what I gain is the enjoyment of the experience Mm. so I think that is very fundamental to how I've chosen to live my life in the city but I I absolutely understand that it is not how everyone lives their life. Mm. This is really memoir too isn't it? Uh, You're walking us through your past and indeed your, your current thoughts. Yeah I think in a way I think I was very uncomfortable with that label when I was working on it because I don't think I am interesting enough to, or have lived an interesting enough life to merit a memoir and I love reading memoirs of people who have had interesting lives but at the same time, I knew I could not write a book length work of nonfiction and not give the reader enough of a sense of who I was, because that's how they build a connection with the book. I think you need to tell them who you are so that they can decide if they're interested in you or not. So when I try to write about my own experience, I try to do it in such a way that the reader can think about her own experience as well. So I think that hopefully <laughs> when you read the book, it's not really about what you learn about me, but it might be about what you learn about yourself in a way. Mm. And we learn about areas too. I mean, you tell us a great deal about the, the areas through which you walk. Yeah, I'm just, I've always been interested in kind of the history of places. What was there before I was? What was there before the building I'm in was, you know, that sort of thing. And any kind of trivia I can gather around that is really enjoyable to me. So at the same time, I'm not a writer of history. I didn't want to write a history of London's neighbourhoods. There are wonderful books that do that much better than I could ever do. But at the same time, I think if you're walking and you're looking at things, you're also picking up on on those traces of history everywhere you go. And I talk about that in the chapter about London's sewers as well. I think that 
there's this whole history of the city that exists right below our feet, literally right below our feet, that's shown that for centuries, you know, hundreds and thousands of people have chosen to live here. And we're we're now among that now in the present. Mm, mm, it's so fascinating, isn't it? What's one of your favourite walks? Obviously, living in North London, there are so many beautiful green and leafy places. But for me, what always feels special is taking a walk along the river. So if I have the time and I can start kind of around Embankment and work my way out towards Chelsea and ultimately to a nice riverside pub in Hammersmith, that would be very enjoyable for me. But at the same time, I also like walks through the kind of less pretty parts of the city. I I think that if you walk around the city of London, I find it fascinating that you see hypermodern skyscrapers right beside Roman ruins, you know, and buildings that were burned in the fire of London. I think that once you start noticing these different layers of things built on top of each other, it's an amazing feeling to realise how old and how many different eras London has in it that we, we often wouldn't think about when we move through the city. Let's talk about these private slash public spaces mm-hmm. in, in cities. So, for instance, Pond Square is a place you discuss in, in, in Highgate, which is still open to the public. And I know a lot of residents there have lobbied for it not to be. Mm-hmm. I live on a, on a communal garden and it's wonderful knowing only people that border it are in there. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that public slash private space? Oh, it's difficult, isn't it? Because a communal garden, it it can be a wonderful thing for people to share and and residents to feel like they're a little bit more involved in their own kind of hyper-local community in that way. At the same time, it's difficult for me not to think about how few green spaces there are in the city. And it can just be mad to think that some of them are closed off to the public. Like even, you know, where we are in Marlebone, there are, are private squares nearby that I've just thought, isn't it kind of sad that people can't wander in there and that... Hyde Park is lovely, but it's big and it's across a large road from here. You know, if you lived around here, you might be very envious of the lovely private squares around here. Yeah, I think there's definitely a tension there because I do really believe that the city should belong to the people who live there and work there and love there and, and you know, conduct their entire lives there because we've chosen to do so. And it can be very difficult to feel like you're locked out for what are essentially kind of reasons of, of finance, you know, and privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of the short interviews that you did goes back to your love of fashion. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a, a fashion designer, uh, Yeshana Malhotra. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I saw her on Instagram originally. And this was what I missed in lockdown and seeing this endless parade of spontaneity on the street. I really tried to find it on Instagram and online. You know, there are a lot of these kind of social media accounts that track down stylish strangers on the street. And looking at all these people kind of gave me a way to feel like I was taking my place on the street, even if I was just in my tiny flat in Highgate. And I found this woman, Yashana, who makes these amazing dresses, like metres and metres of fabric. And she was a student at Central St. Martin's and I had studied there as well. So I got in contact with her and we had a brilliant conversation about taking up space on the street. And I I was kind of saying, like, have you ever gotten... She wears these dresses everywhere. And I was like, do you ever get on the tube and think like, oh God, like this, this dress is too big. And she was like, no, of course not. Like, I have to get on the tube too kind of thing. And I was like, that's completely right, you know. And you see people with luggage and cellos and things on the, on the tube. So, yeah, I think it's it, it really reminded me that so much, I think the ways we move around the city as Londoners, we do kind of have to shirk a little bit. You know, we, we go into ourselves, we shrink up a little bit. But talking to Yashana really reminded me that 
there's a completely different way to move around the city that that is actually mm. quite joyful as well. Mm. Just before we go, I just want to look at another aspect of your work, which is your newsletter, which yes. you call London Review of Looks, which I love. Uh, and just about the concept, actually, of having mm. a newsletter, because it seems like podcasts to have been a thing that's absolutely taken off in the in the last couple of years. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's very interesting because I think it was it was either 2016 or 2017 when I started and there was many newsletters around at the time from journalists, but not in the way that there are now. And what appealed to me about that was, you know, I was a somewhat frustrated fashion journalist and I had I knew that what I loved about fashion journalism was the writing. And that was the part that was the hardest because if you're a freelancer, you're kind of pitching to editors and, you know, you might have an editor who says, you know, I love this idea, but there's no news hook. Like, there's no way for me to print this in this week's paper or this week's magazine because it needs to be tied to a celebrity or something. And I wanted these kind of human stories about clothes in the city. And the idea of having a newsletter, it was kind of a challenge to myself as a writer because I was putting quite tight formal constraints on it. It's, you know, under 500 or 600 words. It's kind of based around a look of the week, which is one person or one encounter I've had with someone on the city in, in the streets and what, how that's been a jumping off point for me to think about clothes or the city or my life here, those sort of things. But it was it was a very small space to do that. And I was very aware that, you know, a newsletter goes into people's inboxes. It feels quite intimate in a way that reading a column in a magazine doesn't always. That feels a bit more kind of mass. And I really did, I just didn't want to waste any of my readers' time. I wanted them to feel like this is a nice thing to pop up in my inbox. It doesn't feel like work to read. So I think in a way it has made me a better writer because it has made me think about those different things in my own writing. And it has given me a lack of freedom that I think can be very helpful for a lot of writers. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure kind of helped you bring this book to the public's attention too. Definitely. I think that people can form real relationships with newsletters that they receive over the years. And I had gotten so much amazing feedback from people who, you know, people who've never been to London, but who said, you know, I love what you think about the city and how it's changed how I feel about how I live. And then that was kind of over the years what made me think, well, maybe there's something I could do with this, maybe something that goes a bit deeper, maybe something like a book. Yeah. So really a, a good a good thing for, for young writers or aspiring writers to, to think about. Absolutely. I would definitely say that. Any chance you have to develop your voice in whatever way that is, that's definitely something you should pursue. Anna, this is a lovely book. It's called Look Here on the Pleasures of Observing the City. Uh, and it's published by Daunt Books. And it's by Anna Kinsella. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Monocle Reads and thanks to our producer, Nora Hull, and researcher, Annabel Martin. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>